0: I'm really focused on you do all the work, but then ultimately you gotta follow your gut. That I think is really important. And then your partners gut check your gut for you. <laughs> I will say the thing from a deal-making standpoint that gets me really excited is when a founder has an insight that is new, and so obviously you want to figure out, does the founder have domain expertise? Is there something that maybe happened in their life from a personal pain point that this is a very passionate thing for them? And so that's really important that their motivations are genuine.
1: Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Serrata. Now, here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Onsirata. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. How do you spot a diamond in the rough? What can you look for in a potential investment that will properly inform you about the future success? Today's guest can help enlighten us. Latif Baraj is general partner at M13, a venture capital firm focused on early-stage consumer technology companies. M13 boasts over $900 million of assets under management, and as general partner, Latif manages the overall investing strategy for the firm. He's led many, many deals across money and health verticals with a focus on Web3. I'm very excited to talk to Latif about how he approaches investing strategy at M13, his past experiences working at Virgin Group and investing in companies like Ring and Slack, as well as the art of deal-making. Welcome, Lateef. I'm so excited to talk to you, just to be able to see you, and more importantly, to talk to you about business, but more than that, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> you know I got to get it in there. All I want to do is talk about Michigan. Great to be here, Dahani. It's a real pleasure. And for all,
0: anyone listening out there, this is truly a pleasure for me because I've been a big Dahani Jones fan since I was in high school, so great to be here.
1: Well, I'm a big Latif fan just because of all the great things that you've done and most importantly, all of the great things that you represent and the fact, as I mentioned earlier is the fact that you come from this crew of people that have evolved from the greatest university in the entire world. I mean, I know people get tired of it when I keep talking about through the pathfinders about Michigan, 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 but it's true. We run the world. We are all over the place and we're doing amazing things. And you know what? We make no bones about it. And, you know, we're bold in the things that we predict. We're bold in the things that we do. or are bold in the areas of which we want to spend time. I mean, where do you think that ultimately comes from, if you will, from a Michigan background?
0: I would say there is something special in the water in Ann Arbor. I mean, it's very tribal in a way that I think humans are generally quite tribal. And these communities grow over generations. And I think Michigan's got something that's very special that both is a tremendous academic institution, athletic institution, and research institution. So I just think just one of those unique places and yeah, big part of my makeup. And I have to say, you probably don't remember this, but we met, I met Dahani at a venture capital conference about five, six, seven years ago. And I remember the moment I saw him, he didn't know who I was. And I was like, oh my God, that's, Think actually, I thought, holy shit, that's Dahani Jones because when I was a senior in high school, my brother and I would go up to the big house, and that was a very special year, in nineteen ninety-seven, as anyone who follows college football knows. And so, it's been really a treat to become a friend and see your great growth from college to the NFL and now as
1: an entrepreneur and let me call you a media personality. (laughs) Look, I'm just trying to learn from some of the best, and like everything else, that's the Michigan way. We are the leaders. We are the best. We have our specific talents. But I think even those talents sort of change and they evolve over time. So while I appreciate the comments, I'm trying to gain that knowledge from experts like yourself, of which I'm a big fan of. And I... Dr. Brophy at Michigan has done an amazing job. Dick Costolo has done an amazing job. Wendell Brooks has done an amazing job. I mean, if anybody doesn't know those people, I just would invite you to Google it because I don't have enough time in order to kind of list the litany of amazing things that everybody has essentially done. Hopefully they'll be on the Pathfinders, much like Latif is. Are you working or spending any time with the school since you've left?
0: Yes, I have actually. I'm on the board of UMSI, which is the School of Information. That's like their data, AI, and, and other areas of advanced technology. So I spend time there a couple of times a year. I'm in Ann Arbor for those board meetings. I help mentor some of the students there and also try to provide potentially internships and jobs through our portfolio companies. And then also very involved at the business school with a seminar that we've gotten off the ground. We did our first one last year on venture capital. I was fortunate enough to have my mentor, a guy named Roger Ehrenberg started IA Ventures. We hosted that together and recruited Samuel Shaw, who's a VC at a fund called Haystack, who also is a Michigan grad to come. And we had a great session then, and looking forward to spending a lot more time in Ann Arbor, really trying to bring the best leaders in in tech from New York, San Francisco, LA, wherever they may be and bringing them to uh, Ann Arbor to, to really continue to support the school. And I think is a multi-decade
1: tailwind around tech and venture capital. It's amazing how you just kind of listed out a couple other people. And I was like, "Yo, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Haystack, Coastal Adventures, IA Ventures, Rob Ehrenberg, who's a good friend as well the list goes on and on. And and I'm just curious, like, as you have progressed through this venture capital world, as you've progressed through the operational world, what is something that really sets you apart at M13 that makes you just so much different? What's that sort of that competitive edge? Because, you know, people are right now just kind of going through the list of all the, the VC firms that are out there and they might all have a similar formula. What is different in your ingredients that makes the outcome that much more of a successful meal, so to speak.
0: We often asked ourselves in the early days, does the world need another venture capital firm? And our answer was, yes, it it did, but it had to be unique. And I think it's a combination of the fact that we take the art of investing very seriously. We're very thematic in the way we look at our four main sectors, which is health, money, commerce, and future work. But we also are all operators by background, I, to joke, I am probably got the least operating experience at the firm, but everyone else has definitely built some very good things. But no, we take a very active approach to supporting our portfolio companies, not just as investment leads that sit on boards, but we built something called our Propulsion Platform, which has world-class executives and their full-time partners at the firm around brand data, people, product, and operations. And they come in. And they're basically like the executive team that you know no startup can really afford, but they get great resources. And then I think really we also are a band of outsiders. No partner at the firm has ever worked at a classic VC. And so we kind of look at things with the first principles respect the way that the asset class has worked in terms of how you generate returns. But at the same time, we're able to kind of look at things with fresh eyes and, you know, not to make a parallel to sports, but it's very much a, it's been to date a very star driven culture where a VC firm is known because a certain partner that was made some great investments. And we try to flip that on its head where it's really about the team. We try not to do like a lot of deal attribution in terms of who did what deals, and as we thought about, like, what, who do we want to be? Our view was we want to be the San Antonio Spurs, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is, hold on here. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to bring it all together. I'm just trying to, trying to figure out the team reference. Like, okay, go ahead. Multi-decade run, not the just championship caliber,
0: but it was all about the team. It wasn't necessarily about a single-star player, despite the fact they had great players like Duncan and Ginobili and, Tony Parker and all these guys, but it was always about the team and the front of the jersey, not Mm. the back of the jersey. And that's something that we talk about a lot at the firm. And so that's where I think we've been different. But ultimately, people want to join families as we think about recruiting at our own firm, but also our portfolio company CEOs, when we're trying to pitch a CEO, it's a hell of a lot easier when they look and they say, oh, well, who is M13 invested in? And so you got a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, but we thankfully have got a great track record as a firm. Over now, three funds and the partners that before coming to M13 also have their own operating and investing track records. And so that just grows over time and people want to be on winning teams. And so that's something that we, we talk about a lot.
1: I want to be on a winning team. You need any advice to counsel, you know, you can call me. No problem. I can just pass that out to you. No problem at all. I do that for all my my Michigan family, if you will. So I call <laughs> you. You know I call
0: you. I get <laughs> advice from you.
1: I know. But what do you think about this band of outsiders? Not a lot of People necessarily ascribe to this notion of being outside because I think that in a lot of ways, some people, in my opinion, operate under sort of the convenience of normality, right? What's always been done will continue to be done. And it's really hard to kind of change these sort of mental paradigms that one might go through and sort of believe and trust in sort of a new perspective, how did you sort of arrive at this notion of band of outsiders? And how was it received in the world where it's been quite traditional in the way things have been done, and there's not really that much room for change?
0: Well, we didn't come in purposefully and say, look at us, we're a band of outsiders. I think we kind of observed it over time. What we really felt was that we could service entrepreneurs in a way that was different mm. in that we didn't again, we have so much respect for all of our peers. I mean, there's just tremendously talented investors everywhere, but we wanted to create a much more collaborative environment for our entrepreneurs. And so instead of Latif or Dahani being your, you know, lead investor and sitting on your board and like you can that say is, running
1: back and in- and quarterback, or, you know, you can be the quarterback, or you can say middle linebacker, like safety, you know, we can make, we can run with the, the the team analogies. It's perfect.
0: Yeah. Instead of having just your one quarterback, you have access to a much broader set of people at the firm. And I think the founders have appreciated the fact that they know all the partners and they can call on all the partners for advice because, you know, my expertise is in a certain area I'm probably the most, despite the fact I I worked for Virgin and Richard, which is this whole other thing, I was probably the most classically trained investor. And so you can come to me for certain things on fundraising and strategy, but Carl Alomar, one of our partners, has scaled a huge public company now called DigitalOcean from before it's Series A. So Mm. Carl can help you in ways that I can't help you. And so making sure that the founders understand that they have access to this great set of investing partners, operating partners. And now we have a team of well over 30 people and we have two and a half operators for every investor, which means we really, really try to. Provide full support for our companies. And that helps me as an investor because it helps our brand helps me win deals when we're competing with some big names in the market. And also obviously it helps after we make an investment because we give our companies the best shot to succeed and not all of them succeed and in fact, The hardest thing I've had to grapple with as an investor, and I think anyone who's in VC has to deal with this, the numbers tell you that like only 30% of deals actually work. So like imagine you're going in and everyone's always very optimistic, otherwise you wouldn't do the deal, but the numbers would suggest that this deal you're about to do isn't going to work. (laughs) But when they work, they really need to work and they do work. That's why the asset class is so proven. And so that's, that's tough because... Startups go up and down, and it takes honestly it takes five, six, seven years before you truly know that that investment is a good investment because you get to you get to exit, and that's what it's all about is distributing capital back to your investors. And so on that continuum, there's a lot that goes on, and you gotta you gotta stay balanced. You gotta not get too high, not get too low. And you have to have the right partners around you to to support you in that journey.
1: And so as you all have grown the firm and as you're surrounded by these different CEOs and everybody kind of takes this, I'd say this like servant leadership, right, mentality towards a lot of the founders. How are you helped in the moment, right? Being the general partner, you're sitting there and maybe you're not the final decision, but you have a big position to kind of decide yes or no or kind of put your weight forward, how do you sort of align yourself with the CEOs and how do you align yourself with the founders and kind of find yourself in the middle? And how do you sort of tune out the noise, so to speak, right? You're at the free throw line and you gotta make your shot. You're not thinking to yourself, you gotta be 30%, right? You're thinking to yourself, I gotta be a hundred percent because every one of my free throws count. I gotta think about myself like Tom Brady on the field. I can't go three for 10. I gotta go 10 for 10, you know, I'm a winner. So I'm always curious when you sit at the table, how do you not only filter things out, but also how do you sort of receive certain information and process it as an investor?
0: Well, I'm going to try to take your analogy. I think when I go to the food throw line, I know I'm not going to be hundred percent, but if I get enough reps in, and that's kind of what you do over a career you continue to calibrate and you continue to fine tune your form so that I can be a best in class free throw shooter. <laughs> so I guess try to take this forward, <laughs> 80, 90% a free throw shooter, I guess maybe adventure in venture instead of 30, you've got a better hit rate, 40 or 50. But the, to me, it's the most important thing is making sure that when we invest in a founder, and their vision, which ultimately it's not our vision, we can convince ourselves, but it's their vision and we can have some influence, that that vision is big enough to be a very, very material business Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. us. I actually find the worst thing you can do is invest in a company that is successful for the vision that was laid out, but it ends up being a small outcome. Because if you've got 20 positions in a fund, every one of those 20 positions need to be very material potentially to the firm. Because you know, in the back of your mind, That because startups are hard, some of them aren't going to work. And so you got to just make sure that you are framing this thing. So it's not a hundred or $200 million outcome we're after. It's a one or two or $3 billion outcome that we're after. And so it's really about fine tuning the framework by which we look at investments. And then what I'd say is the last 10 years have been pretty good time in venture capital, right? Everything's been up and to the right. We've all seen the last year has been tough Mm -hmm. and a lot of companies are struggling to raise money. And that was never an issue previously. And so it's a lot more time on portfolio management, managing our founders or working with our founders versus like looking at new investments. I'm looking forward to looking at more new investments going forward. But really, it's making sure that you're sitting with a founder and being honest and saying, you know, sometimes it's worth it to keep going because there's something that we see that gives us reason to believe that the company still has a great chance of being successful. The other side is Mm. If it really feels like it's going to be a really tough road, I got to be close enough with you, Dahani is my CEO to say, Dahani, you know this Pathfinder thing is cool, but maybe it's time for the next thing now I'm kidding. but like
1: you're talking about an evolution. you're talking about an evolution of opportunity, yeah right Because sometimes the ground shifts. If there's not enough flex in the house, it falls down.
0: And I think it's important that we have that conversation with the founder to say, yeah, this vision now, based on what we're seeing around us from, you know, your your competitors to like the way the market is giving new money to you in terms of financings, like we have to take all that and make a decision with the founder, like, should we keep going? And hopefully the answer is yes, but sometimes the decision is no, and it's sometimes a relief because they feel like they're letting you down. And the reality is it's hard, right? And maybe it's time for the next chapter in your journey and a lot of times we'll back that same founder again even if they failed because we still believe in them and so it's become a lot more of a challenging time from just having to have these conversations but they're really important
1: so i don't think i've ever asked anybody on the show about failure right and i'm thinking about it as a player i didn't make every tackle Right, I mean, matter of fact, in most sports, if you're 30% on the field, in other words, like three out of every 10 plays you're involved in, you're an all pro four out of 10. I mean, come on. Think about baseball. If you're batting 300, it's amazing, right? You're an all-star. So there's points that you fail as a investor. You never think that you're going to fail. You gave yourself one free throw out of those 10, but as you think, or how do you process this notion of a failure? Because it's a reality in so many different ways. And whether you're talking about health or money or future of work, I mean, all these much like that soil underneath the house are always shifting. It's bending. Sometimes it actually does break and it does fall down. What are the thought processes or what are the, the ways that you take yourself and move away from that or learn from it and move on from it? as an investor because a cornerback that doesn't forget about the last play that got burned on will not be in the league for a long time. A player that misses a free throw and doesn't forget about that free throw will not play in the NBA for a long period of time. Same thing with baseball, same thing with golf. Every single sport has those moments where you got to forget and you got to move on. In golf, sometimes it's five years before winning another major because you still got the yips from like two years ago at the Masters, right? So how do you work through
0: that? It's a constant process. And I would say, ultimately, I think to be successful in any walk of life, you've got to have a certain core level of self confidence and it gets battered from time to time, but you gotta keep coming back to. There's a reason I'm here. There's a reason why I'm a starting linebacker. For Ooh, you starting linebacker the Latif.
1: I like how you're talking right now. Starting linebacker. You started right? No. <laughs> no, I did. I'm saying you're starting uh-huh. linebacker right now. I'm gonna call the Browns. I'm gonna call them right now. Okay, I'm gonna call Tish family.
0: Most importantly, starting linebacker of the '97 championship Michigan football team. But That's what I'm talking about. There's a reason, you know. There's a reason why you're here, and it's something you have to constantly remember. And you're here because you've got you've, you've worked hard, and you've got a track record that indicates you're pretty good at what you do. And you kind of have to remind yourself of that, despite the fact that maybe seven out of the ten things you do over the course of many years are things that people are never going to talk about. But that's okay because. Mm-hmm. At least in our business, no one talks about the things that they've worked on that didn't work. They talk about the fact they invested in one of these great companies that we all know and love. And that's really what it's all about. So if you can't find one of those companies over a decade of investing, then it's probably time to hang up the cleats and do something else in life. But I do think it also helps when you have got great partners around the table. You've got great investors who invested in your firm who believe in you. And yeah, I think the parallels between sports and investing are, are very, very you know, appropriate.
1: I love the visual that people always talk about in terms of that glacier, right? People have always seen it all the time. People have it in memes. It's in, in comics, it's, it's written about, right? It's like the glacier that you see above the water is what everybody talks about. This big substantial feature that everybody raves about. But what most people forget is that the glacier underneath the water is so much bigger, right? You're probably only seeing 30% on top. And you know, as you move forward as an investor, people remember some of the bigger deals that you've done. They don't even sometimes recall, but sometimes the psyche gets so hung up on what didn't I do? What did I need to do? And they can't kind of get out of their own way. And so as a middle linebacker, That's why, in my my opinion, you always kind of think about this, recognize, regroup, and refocus. You know, you move on to the next play. You've come from an amazing pedigree, so to speak. You talked about being a little bit more of the classically trained investor where some of your band, so to speak, may not have had that approach. What was it like working with Branson? Because, you know, I've met him a couple different times. I've had some conversations. Yes, I just dropped the fact that, yes, I have met Richard Branson. He's met the Honey Jones. I mean, that's a big deal. <laughs> but what, what were some of the things that you learned while working at Virgin, specifically working with Richard? And we'll get into some of the deals that you've essentially done. But what were some of the takeaways? Because... You know, he's an iconic investor that's been around for a significant amount of time and heavily, heavily diversified. And I would definitely say that he would qualify himself as an outsider. For sure. But he had a different way of doing things. So what did you take from him mix into the ingredients of already what you had at Michigan in order to kind of create success where you are today? I think
0: the thing about Richard, and I've talked about this in the past, is he just tremendously, tremendously optimistic. Mm. I mean, I think his disposition is very, very positive. He is not afraid of mistakes, and he is very biased to action.
1: What does that mean? Like, meaning he just goes, he just goes for it.
0: Sometimes that means you're, you know, he started a record label, then had a bad experience on an airline, and then decided he was going to start British Airways. It's kind of insane, but the reality is he was willing to go forward and not be afraid to fail, even if starting an airlines capital intensive and you've got, you know, all, you know, how are you going to get gates and how are you going to do all these, how are you going to get a plane, like all these things that he just worked through. And it's just an old, old example, but he's kind of carried that forward through his career. And I think he was always smart enough to surround himself with people that were like, he would always joke around that he's Dr. Yes. And everyone else was like Dr. No Hmm. around him, because there was that tension that made sure that you had a good balance of people that were. How aggressive and optimistic with people that were really thinking about diversification and being conservative and all these things, as you think about his capital and growing Virgin Group. The reality is, I don't know exactly where the assets under management are today for Virgin. It's really just the ransom capital, but it's probably somewhere between six and seven billion. And that seems like a lot of assets. But the reality is, when you're trying to attack space and cruise lines and everything else, mm. you need a lot of partners to come along. Board with your private equity funds, venture capital funds, sovereign wealth funds. And if you didn't deliver great returns for those investors, that would dry up. And so Virgin has been amazing at doing that over 40, 50 years and created several billion dollar companies from scratch. So I would take from him just bias to action. It's something that I've really worked on. Even my partners at M13, I learned so much from Carter and Courtney and everybody really, but Carter in particular It's just such a bias to action and just kind of goes where I can kind of sometimes get stuck in my own head and my own thoughts. And I think that there's a a balance there. The last thing I'd say about Richard is he, even whatever, he's in his seventies now, he knows he's made it, but there's a part of him that's still hungry. Mm -hmm. He's definitely still kind of like vying for those companies that are ahead of him and for Virgin. and, And I think there's that chip on his shoulder that, kind of is just his DNA. And I think a lot of successful people like him have that. It's not, I had a great exit, so now I'm just going to sit on my island, which he does. But <laughs> but, but he's very aggressive. He's very aggressively thinking about the world from his island and moving things around and flying around and really attacking every day. And so so that's kind of the stuff I would say very inspirational, honestly, working with him. And he's still a mentor and a friend, and he's been an investor in all of our funds since left Virgin, which has been great to hopefully make him a bit more money and keep that, keep that close relationship.
1: And in that bias to action during the time that you were with Virgin group, you know, you had a lot of success, right? Ring and Slack and some other companies and maybe one that even went to outer space. And so two questions, one being like, what allowed you to see success in those companies, right? You know, when you looked at them, What were the key determining factors why you said yes? You raised your hand, even when maybe he might have pushed back and said no. What led to your conviction, or what are your principles of conviction that leads you to a yes?
0: Yeah, so Virgin Galactic's always been his baby long before I was at Virgin, so I'm not going to take credit for seeing anything there. We were all along for the ride with Richard on that one. It was really about managing the capital and how much it needed and making sure, honestly, we could still do other things besides Galactic. On Ring, I would say, and that was really probably the most important deal while I was at Virgin for me, because it led me to M13, because kind of for the first time, I realized Mm -hmm. that was what I wanted to do, which was invest in, purely invest in startups. As much as I enjoyed all the Virgin companies I got a chance to work on, Carter and Courtney started M13 were seed investors in ring. And I got to know them through that whole deal and through the founder, this guy named Jamie Siminoff, who would actually be a great person for you to talk to as well on, on this show.
1: I mean, we'll take a note of that. Yes. Thank you.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Jamie's uh, you know, a close friend of mine to this day. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a well-known story about how that all came together. But I I spent an afternoon with him in Santa Monica on a weekend. Both of us had fairly low expectations of where this meeting was gonna go because it was a security business, a doorbell business. And I walked out of there a couple hours later with a tremendous conviction. I think ultimately it's about the biggest, single most important thing is the founder because every single company and Ring had its ups and downs. Every single company is gonna go through a really tough time. And Jamie was just, he had something very special around his tremendous self-belief, his bias to action his ability to be, he also was incredibly paranoid about competition. (laughs) So like always thinking about how do I win? And that was really, really important. And then also that like the need in the market at the time was so obvious. ADT was kind of a crappy product. People should be using their smartphones to be able to like talk to people at their front door. It just made a whole lot of sense. Now it's very obvious because we all do it, but in 2015, it was pretty interesting and pretty new. And so it was just seeing, seeing the need in the market and then honestly backing a guy like Jamie, that was probably the easiest investment I've ever made to be honest, because it, it just seemed like so obvious to me. And I wish there were more seriously obvious investments, but as the world evolves and there's more competition everywhere, deals are less and less obvious. And so spending a lot of time just trying to, trying to find more Jamie's, but not necessarily personality wise, really just getting down to the drive and and what makes them tick, because you can have boisterous founders like Jamie, or you can have very quiet quiet killers too. And it's not about that. It's really about getting down to the motivations of
1: of the founder. Have there been any deals that you've seen that have spurned that deal-making mindset that you have into saying, I really wanna do this, but something's holding me back from it. And how did that play out for you? Because I think a lot of times as an investor, you see a lot of shiny objects <laughs> and you're like, dependent upon your own personal discernment and your principles and the way that you do your you know, own personal underwriting, they could become that much more shiny. And sometimes you just really, really want to do something uh, and you feel as though you have a conviction, but there's also that voice that is always talking to you. So is there, or has there been that deal where you're like, no, I got to walk away from the free throw line because that's not something worth me taking the shot. I'll move on to the next game.
0: It's happened a lot. It's happened a lot. It's really tough to do because you get emotionally, you get like emotionally pregnant with a deal if you spend a lot of time on it and you see all the benefits. But if there's something holding you back, I've found that you got to pull the ripcord because usually, you know, venture capital is so much art and science both. And the art part of it is that. It's like there's something holding you back. I have a gut feeling that perhaps it's something around the founder profile of how they're thinking about the business or personality wise or whatever it is. But I've found that that's really, really important to be able to pull out of a situation. And oftentimes when I've made mistakes it's because I had that inkling and I still convinced myself to go forward, that mm. almost never works. And so so I'm, I'm really focused on you do all the work, but then ultimately you got to follow your gut. Um, that I think is really important. And then your partner's gut check your gut. For you. (laughs) That's really critical. I mean, I will say the thing from a deal making standpoint that gets me really excited is when a founder has an insight that is new. And so, obviously, you want to figure out does the founder have domain expertise? Is there something that maybe happened in their life from a personal pain point that this is a very passionate thing for them? And so, that's really important that their motivations are genuine. And then, I'll give you one quick example in a healthcare company we did called Form Health. Which is an obesity management platform that combines obesity medicine, which is a new field with dietitians and, and a product that really kind of works very cohesively for the patient. The founder, Evan Richardson, had a great experience at many digital health successful startups, so he had great expertise. But then he showed me a slide in the deck where I was it really was illuminating, which showed that obesity medicine today, is like 1% of the addressable market, meaning there's all these all this innovation in pharma that's come out in the last couple of years, but really the whole field is just seven years old. Before that, it was like, hey, get off your butt, stop eating potato chips. Like that was the whole idea, but the reality is a lot of this is genetic, a lot of this is actually just predispositions. And so obesity medicine became a field and we believed that it was gonna grow to be a much bigger field over time because the prevalence of medication for other new treatments like depression, which was never a disease for a very long time and then got classified as a disease, those prevalence rates in terms of treatment is like 60, 70%, but the number of Americans that are, are suffering is probably 20 to 30% based on the data. We all know that obesity is a huge issue in America, so it's over hundred million Americans. So the prevalence is very, very high. And so we thought if you can get the treatment rate to be high this is just a massive market opportunity. So we looked at it and said, this is a $500 billion opportunity. And so we made the investment in the heart of COVID. I remember going up to Boston to meet with him with our masks on and the whole thing. I mean, it was it was very kind of a dark morning, actually. <laughs> but it ended up being a very successful morning. We did the deal. And, you know, the market has exploded for obesity medicine. And there's all these great pharma drugs out there, Ozempic and Wagovi and everything else. But it's a combination of all that plus their product that we think sets them up for great success. Kind of a long-winded story, but you're always looking for like that insight that gets you really excited. You take that insight, you take the founder, and then it's just kind of obvious you go for it.
1: I like that. The insight, the founder, go for it. It's what Richard said in terms of bias to action, but it's also having that level of conviction, right? And ultimately it's timing too, right? Because sometimes you could be couple years too early and people say that you're wrong. And then a couple years too late and you're on the trailing edge, not the leading edge, right? And I think that the way that you all have positioned yourself, you've kind of put yourself squarely in that sweet spot where Bernoulli's principle is lifting you into outer space, much like Virgin Galactic. And you want to carry yourself into the next stratosphere. But I would also say that Some areas which are a little bit challenged right now, in my opinion, are like the Web3 area. And I know you've spent some time on that. But as you think about the blockchain space and the volatility of that part of the market, and as you think about some of the things that you're doing in terms of health and money and future of work, how does that all co-mingle in your opinion, right? And how do you sort of arrive at this future state where you have enough elevation to kind of continue on in your trajectory as a company. Well, we try
0: not to follow the crowd and so as a principle and so we don't look at ourselves as a tourist in any one market and the web3 and crypto strategy for the firm is one that I've driven a lot of and actually my my first deal in 2019 when I when I joined was in a company called Lightning Labs which makes bitcoin faster and cheaper to use for transactions and for moving Bitcoin and actually now non-Bitcoin assets around the world. When we did that deal, Bitcoin was probably at 3000 and like that market was not one that people were paying tremendous attention to. Mm. We made an investment and then a follow on investment shortly after that. And then the market exploded across that whole sector in terms of interest and money and hype and all these things. And some utility like NFTs actually were pretty cool initial use case. Actually, the first initial case was actually the movement of money. But then second one, I think we're NFTs. And now the, the market has gone super quiet again. And I think if you look at these things, there's a classic thing called the Gartner hype cycle in new technologies where, you know, things peak. And then there's this what's called a trough of disillusionment where things kind of get really quiet and the market shrinks. And then it comes rising back and it finds its equilibrium. I think we're somewhere in that trough right now which, again, as an investor, is a very interesting time to continue to look at the market. And so long as, to your other point on timing, that trough doesn't last so long that you bleed out, you got to watch these things. I mean, our view is that that market is actually still incredibly attractive and we will continue to invest and we'll continue to be thoughtful about it. And you didn't ask me this, and I don't know if it's going to be true, but my crystal ball tells me interest rates come down towards the end of this year, and 2024, 2025 will be, you know, very interesting years for for the Web3 market. And now that AI has become such a hot topic, it's going through its own hype cycle. But what's really cool about AI is mm-hmm. actually the use cases are obvious, like search and personal assistance and all these things that we can touch and feel. So I think the pressure is on for the Web3 market to start to really drive much more clear utility to users. And I think we're, we're, we're close. And so we're, we're excited to follow that through.
1: So have you ever brokered a deal in the metaverse? <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I haven't, I've been much more terrestrial, <laughs> but you never say, never say never to honey.
1: Well, I I love the fact of that your conviction of, of web three, and I actually understand a line I b- believe in it as well. And I'm taking notes as I'm listening to you because I want to be a great investor, much like yourself. So as we're kind of winding down, you know, the art of deal-making has a lot of different components. And you said one thing at the middle of today's episode of the Pathfinders, if you will, about Branson and his chip on his shoulder. You've referenced a little bit in terms of like, you know, you do things a little bit different at M13, fine. How much of that is necessary as an investor? Even when things are challenged and even when people might not sort of agree or people say that you may not be successful, how much of that importance of believing in yourself is necessary in order to kind of punch through right to get through that trough and get to the other side
0: that's everything it's really important as i mentioned to stay balanced it's really important to have great people around you and as you know it's really important i think actually to be kind of balance your mental and your physical activity so one of the things that's really important for me like you know my shoulder has been giving me a little bit of pain lately But it's really important to like be active and I try to be very active five, six days a week and that's Mm -hmm. incredibly helpful and very therapeutic and sort of meditative for me. And so there's things like that which I I think are incredibly important. And then no matter how much success you have or haven't had, I think it's ultimately about like the next thing. There's mantra of like you're only as good as your, your next deal is really, really critical. I've been fortunate to be around some people that have had great success. And I think they all have that in them, which is they don't rest on their laurels. They don't look back and say, look at all the great things I've done. You can, I think, appreciate some of that and some good fortune, but it's always about like pushing forward. And so I think that's important when things are great. And that's important when things are looking a little bit, a little bit tougher. And I think it's all about that kind of balanced disposition, all about kind of just the next day, the next moment, one foot after another. So that's kind of what we think about. And it's great to have Again, a diverse set of partners at M13 who've got all kinds of experiences, and we've seen this come together even in the last week. You know, we just had this banking crisis, and to, to see the way we the firm has come together and supporting our founders has been really, really cool.
1: So as we come to a close, I would love to know your proudest moment. That's one. And, you know, we always talk about meals and deals right? And so what's your favorite deal and celebratory meal? And it might be your proudest moment all in one, but if you could just tell everybody your favorite meals and deal and your proudest moment, it's always important to celebrate our success as well.
0: My true proudest moment is when my wife decided to marry me, which is very kind of her. So I would say that's my broadest pride moment and then seeing our young kids come to be. But on a professional side, I would say probably there's two moments, if, if you allow me. One is the Amazon acquisition of Ring, which I think was really just, uh, I think, a, a watershed moment to actually see that that exit happen and really due to the amazing fortitude of Jamie, the founder. And then also seeing that first Virgin Galactic flight get to space was was really, really cool. And hopefully we'll have a lot of those moments in, in, at M13. I joined in 19, as I, as I mentioned, it takes a while for these things to, to mature. So we're three, four or five years in on that journey. Mm-hmm. But I look at the rest of the decade and I'm very optimistic that hopefully there'll be more to celebrate. In terms of meals, I mean, we had a great meal in, in LA when I met you. That was that was pretty cool. And then uh, I've had the good fortune of traveling with many of our CEOs. I, I remember having a great lunch with Richard in, in Morocco. And it's cool to like get away mm-hmm. from your everyday and get a chance to talk about not just work, talk about life, talk about politics. And so many meals. But uh, I look forward to hopefully our next one together, Dahani.
1: To I look forward to it as well, Teef. And I look forward to learning from you much more. I look at you as a mentor of mine, as I think about this world of investing and as everybody thinks about the world of investing, I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room and you make me smarter uh, by allowing me to be in your room and by allowing other people to sort of listen to the things that you said. And you said a lot of important stuff inclusive of making sure you have that balanced mind, make sure you take care of yourself, make sure you spend time with good people outside the box thinking is really important. Having those CEOs around the table that may align, but may not align with you is also very important. And I think this bias to action is really critical. A lot of times people have their feet in the mud and they refuse to move forward. You've moved forward, M13 has moved forward and has become incredibly successful because of you. So thank you for joining our show. Latif Paracha, everybody. Thank you, Donnie. Love you, brother. Special thanks again to Latif Paracha for being with us today to discuss investing strategy and so much more. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find this show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Entourage.